greetings and welcome to episode 47 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Japan's Orient, the rising sun in China. We're going to get into the original uh, cultural donor state itself, where Japanese culture in the middle of the first millennium AD Originally, where did the architecture, the script, um, I, uh, Confucian ideas, Buddhist religion, where did all this stuff originally came from? It came from the Chinese mainland, uh, the civilization that grew up in the Yellow River Valley and then extended into the Yangtze uh, 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 Delta later on, um, exports its culture to the Korean Peninsula, to the, nor the Northeast, to uh, Vietnam in the South, and eventually to the Japanese islands as well, and then all these people eventually further adapt that culture that they have received. All right, now, uh, we've been sort of pecking away at the edges of China for the last four or five episodes so far. Uh, today, we're finally going to go to the heartland, all right? The focus here is going to be on the Chinese heartland, roughly between Beijing and Shanghai, all right? The area where Japan is going to try to gain some influence. And so let's begin with uh, sort of a quick review of political and economic investments that Japan has in China by the time we get to the first decade of the 20th century. Remember, uh, the, the beginning of sort of Western-style uh, treaty-based, ostensibly equal relations um, between Japan and the Qing Empire began in 1871 uh, as a result of that incident on Taiwan, which we've talked about several times already. Those are the Ryukyun uh, sailors that are shipwrecked, um, uh, 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 killed by uh, Taiwanese aborigines. And, you know, we, we've talked about this many, many times. All right, we don't need to go over it again. Um, as a result of that incident, uh, this is when Japan begins to establish formal Western-style diplomatic relationships with the Qing, um, really only a decade or two after the Westerners have managed to do that, and just one decade after they've established formal sort of po uh, political relationships with the Western powers. Um, now, the treaty that ends up being signed at this time period will give Japan, uh, they get uh, uh, one very important concessions. Uh, they get the concession of extraterritoriality. The Qing Dynasty is willing to give them extraterritoriality. Um, what they don't get is most favored nation status. Uh, what are these two things? Extraterritoriality, this is a concession that the Western powers wanted very early on. Basically, it says, uh, we think we're a more advanced power than you. Um, we don't trust your judicial systems, uh, and we don't want our citizens to be subject to your laws and your brutal oriental despot style of punishment. Um, and so it usually means in practice that your country's citizens can travel throughout China um, sort of with a little bubble of immunity around them, uh, sort of like a, a, a military soldier in a foreign land, knowing that you can probably cross the boundaries of what would be okay to cross in your own country without facing the sort of punishment that you would almost certainly face back home. Uh, you know that very likely you're going to be treated much, much more leniently um, than you would if you committed the exact same offense or transgression back home. Uh, very often, because when it comes time to uh, mete out justice, sort of international face and reputation and prestige is at stake, um, and it's very difficult for countries to admit that their citizens 
are wrong and uh, you know to punish them severely in accordance with the things they've actually done uh, oftentimes uh, doesn't go over very well back home you mean we're gonna he's gonna get executed because he killed a couple of Chinese in some sort of a dispute over money come on their lives the unspoken sentiment will be their lives are not worth as much as our lives and therefore it's not a one-to-one equivalency you commit a crime over there against the Chinese it shouldn't be punished the same way you would commit a crime against your own citizens back home uh, that's sort of the unspoken superiority that goes into that all right so extraterritoriality a big deal but most favored nation status this is actually even more coveted because what that means is that whenever any foreign empire gains some sort of a privilege or a, con- a, a new concession from Beijing uh, it automatically applies to all other foreign powers or at least you know the big powers that could beat China in a military engagement uh, this was designed to prevent uh, runaway competition among all of the Western powers in China they basically said don't worry you don't all have to scramble uh, to wage your own war with the Qing dynasty and try to one-up us because you're afraid we got a better concession than you um, you know we'll just automatically say all the Western powers get this Japan is still excluded from that club in the 1870s so extraterritoriality is nice um, but you can only really use it if you have a lot of your own expatriate citizens living in China. Um, and Japan doesn't have a whole lot of its citizens living in the Qing Empire uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. For the first 25 years after they get extraterritoriality until the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895, the Japanese uh, presence in China is very limited. Mostly a handful of diplomats, independent traders, shopkeepers, uh, you know, without a very high social profile. Now, this all changes finally in 1895 and again in 1901. The two treaties that are signed in the wake of the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 and then again the Boxer War in 1901. Both of these things we've talked about at length in previous episodes, so again we're not going to go into a whole repeat of what you know, what was the Sino-Japanese War, what was it over, uh, what was the Boxer War over, uh, we, we should know all that by now. All right. Um, these treaties per- gives Japan finally all that the West has. All right, uh, and this accords with the general time frame of the 1890s uh, being the time period in which Japan finally gets accepted as a member ex- of that exclusive prestigious club of advanced Western imperial powers. Um, the Treaty of Shimonoseki gives Japan most favored nation status. It gives them access and settlement rights in all the treaty ports that the Westerners have already set up in China, and it allows them to have interior, uh, interior travel throughout China for all of its citizens. Uh, Um, You know, again, with the extraterritoriality um, and the uh, privileges of most favored nation status. See, the extraterritoriality oftentimes is useless if you don't also have most favored nation status because most favored nation status is what gives you economic and political concessions that will encourage your citizens to then travel more in the interior of that country uh, and thus need the protection of extraterritoriality. Um, Now, the Boxer Indemnity, the the fallout from the Boxer War in 1901, uh, this also provides a huge financial indemnity, all right? Lots of money uh, to Japan, uh, and it also uh, gives Japan the right to station troops in certain parts of northern China where they have their own Japanese communities here, particularly in Manchuria, all right? Uh, That was one of the biggest concessions, uh, sort of the biggest changes from previous decades, is now you can station Japanese soldiers in China. Now, the ostensible pretext for this is that you are protecting Japanese citizens, um, and China has shown itself incapable of looking after 
the life and limb and property of foreign uh, 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 citizens. That's why we had to have the Boxer War in the first place, because the Empress Dowager Cixi uh, declared war on us and uh, uh, condoned the uh, uh, attacks of the Boxers in rural Shandong on foreign missionaries. So clearly we can't trust you anymore. We need to be able to station our own troops here to protect our own communities. Um, however, in practice, as we know, once you have soldiers stationed in a foreign country, um, they can you know, do a lot of things that have nothing to do with protection of their citizens, but will be couched and justified in terms of, oh, we're just protecting our citizens. Now, you've lost a war. If you're China, if you're Beijing, you're the emperor in Beijing, you've lost a war. Uh, foreign soldiers are stationed in, in your land now. Uh, you're not really in a position to be dictating to them, oh, wait, that troop, he's not allowed to do that. That soldier's not allowed to do that. Get out of here. Uh-uh. Uh, you risk going to war again and losing again and then having more concessions and more troops stationed in, in your country. Uh, so it's a very slippery slope. And as we know, uh, this uh, Japan and Russia both being able to station their troops in a similar area in northeastern China after 1901 eventually leads to the, uh, the uh, Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and Japan kicking out Russian influence from Korea, um, from the Liaodong Peninsula and the southern half of Manchuria. Um, then, with the money that they get from the indemnity, Japan finally has more of a financial means uh, to make investments in China. Uh, investments not necessarily that are going to help China, uh, investments into gaining influence with Qing Dynasty officials, uh, uh, starting Japanese factories, investing in them, uh, you know, the consulates, this sort of stuff that cost a lot of money but are essential to furthering your influence <clears throat> in a foreign country. All right. Uh, now, Japan has the pretext and the means, and much of the means have been basically hemorrhaged off from the Chinese uh, empire, from the, the Qing empire itself. Um, it gives you the means now to meddle in Chinese domestic affairs like the Westerners have been doing for decades. You can try and shape Chinese politics to your liking. And in support of that, Japan will eventually create uh, uh, four consulate generals, all right, basically your embassies um, in, in China, and 12 consulates, more than it had in any other country anywhere else in the world. Consulates usually are a very excellent uh, indicator of how important and how many investments um, a country has in another country. Uh, you can usually tell by the size of their embassy compound and how many consulates they have throughout the country uh, because that means they think they have a lot of political economic interests to look after um, and that's why they set up those consulates in the first place. Hereafter, by the time you get the uh, fallout of the Boxer War and the indemnities of 1901 and those treaties and most favored nation status and all that, um, Japan's really only going to lag behind the Westerners, Western influence in China in the realm of religious proselytizing missionaries. You're not really going to have Shinto missionaries like you uh, do. You don't really have missionaries, kind of a wrong word to use. But in Taiwan, Korea, there will be attempts to build Shinto uh, temples. Um, and encourage the local people to give up whatever their previous religion was, uh, suppress Christianity in Korea, suppress Buddhism in Korea and Taiwan, and try to get people to worship Shinto gods and go to the Shinto, uh, Sh 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 Shinto temple. Uh, that really won't happen as much in China as it does elsewhere in the empire.
1901, these major political developments and the treaties that are signed in their aftermath, they are responsible for launching the exponential expansion of Japanese political and economic interest in China. In 1901, Japanese economic investments in China were almost nothing. Three decades later, 1931, fast forward 30 years, uh, Japan's share of of the foreign investment market in China is one-third of all the foreign countries that are investing in China tied with Great Britain. That is an astronomical rise in three decades. What are their chief economic interests? Uh, Cotton, soybeans, iron ore, and coal. All of these are essential raw materials that Japan needs to get to free up the home islands to transition into a different type of economy. If you're able to get your cotton and your soybeans from China, this allows the Japanese home islands to stop growing these or to grow them in far uh, fewer numbers and focus instead on an economy directed towards uh, finished manufactured goods and more advanced technology, uh, sort of the industrial stage of economic development that is going to just further enhance your military uh, and economic hegemony over less developed countries and allow you to enter into exploitative relationships where you can continue to get your raw materials from other countries um, and oftentimes inhibit their own domestic development of these precise industries, thus prolonging the uh, uh, political, military, economic imbalance between yourself and the rest of the world. Uh, Iron ore and coal are the backbone of industrial production, essential to compete on the modern battlefield, and Japan needs to find sources elsewhere outside of the islands for these. Until Japan expands into Southeast Asia in the 1930s, it will have no other major source for any of these essential building blocks of of industrial modernity. All right. Now, Western empires are also taking the same things from China. All right. Uh, But they're doing so mostly for profit or as a supplement to their other empires elsewhere in the world. China, for them, is only one of many global markets. Once again, a point that we made in a a couple episodes ago. For Japan alone, the China market becomes a matter of political and economic life or death. Lose China and the entire empire is endangered. Okay, this realization will prompt uh, the uh, uh, Japanese to create very early on, right after 1901, with the ability to station your own troops, uh, create special schools to create so-called China hands, <laughs> all right, uh, China experts to uh, go to China, gather intelligence, do on-site research, surveillance, support the diplomatic, political, economic, cultural mission of Japan, uh, however they see fit um, uh, in China. All right. As early as 1908, just a few years after these schools have been set up to train uh, China experts in Japan. Qing Dynasty officials, this is still the Qing Dynasty in 1908, as early as 1908, we have documentation of Qing Dynasty officials complaining that the Japanese know more about local conditions in China than the Chinese themselves do. They're saying the data that they're able to compile, the scientific data that they're able to compile, is superior to the data that we are actually able to collect on our own. Um, And obviously, this is a a source of concern, uh, a very big worry when other countries know more about your subjects, um, the agricultural capacity, the taxation capacity, um, natural resources that can be mined out of the local mountains, you know, this sort of stuff. When they know more about that than you do, you're in trouble. 
All right. Now the next major uh, uh, shift, um, uh, turning point, uh, sort of politically, is going to come with the 1911 revolution in China. All right. We're going towards an era of widespread and long-standing chronic revolution and warfare that is going to tear China apart and give Japan its its opportunity uh, to become the sole preeminent foreign power in. China. It's going to be a long, torturous journey, but by in fits and starts, they're going to finally manage to do it um, until they finally lose in World War II. All right, the 1911 revolution, which we're not going to talk about the sources of that. Go back, you know, 20 episodes or, uh, ago whenever we talked about the 1911 revolution, if you want to know what that's all about. The 1911 revolution in China uh, will introduce chronic instability in China for the first time um, in the modern era. Uh, for the first time since the Westerners uh, started to really dig their claws into China, into the Qing Empire uh, during the Opium War in the middle of the 19th century. Now we have chronic instability um, in which the central government itself has fallen and people in China are wondering how or you know whether it's even possible to put all the pieces back together okay uh, you had major rebellions in the heartland in the 1850s and the 1860s but the central government never fell they were able to suppress these rebellions and uh, scrupulously maintain foreign privileges through the unequal treaties um, now this is in danger Okay, the 1911 revolution will destroy political unity in the Chinese heartland, you know, Beijing to, to, to Guangzhou, uh, Hong Kong in the south, um, for about 15 years in the heartland, if you're thinking, uh, till the mid to end of the 1920s, all right, um, and it will destroy political unity for about 30 years in the uh, non-Han borderlands until the Chinese communists are finally able to bring them all back in after 1949, places like Xinjiang and Tibet and uh, Inner Mongolia, okay? This is finally the greatest fear of the foreign powers in China has come true. If there is no unified government in China, then where do we apply pressure to ensure that our foreign privileges are enforced? Remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about how China, uh, how Japan overtook China. Uh, we made the very important point that one of the appeals, one of the incentives to focus all your energy and make sure you keep winning wars in China and neglect Japan, relatively speaking, was because China was a unified central government that gave you access to all the wealth of the huge empire if you could win a war and sign an unequal treaty, whereas Japan wasn't like that. All right, that was one of the reasons why China was so attractive, because they had a central government. Now what are you going to do? All right, here, the foreign powers then respond to the 1911 revolution by searching for different claimants to the new Chinese throne. Who's going to be the new president of this republic? We need to back our guy. This is different from the scramble for concessions that occurred after the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 and lasted for five years or so. Uh, back then, it was the foreign powers trying to shore up unique privileges in regions of China where they had their own foreign influence, like the French down in the southwest in Yunnan, the British mostly in the Yangtze Delta, uh, the Russians up in the north. Um, you know, Each country sort of had its own area that it was going to try to um, um, solidify their concessions um, and make sure if, you know, if the shit hits the fan and China falls apart, at least we'll have our regional influence here. Uh, now, different governments are supporting completely alternative governments that could possibly rule China. 
Japan decides to support a previously marginalized ruler, Sun Yat-sen, a name that you, many of you are probably uh, tangentially familiar with. Sun Yat-sen, uh, we've talked again, you know, I'm not going to go into his life story here either because uh, he got a lot of uh, attention in the episode on the 1911 revolution as well. Um, but he is an exiled revolutionary agitator with lots of international sympathy, but little presence in China. All right, like many uh, exiled uh, agitators, uh, as early as the 1890s, he's already, you know, Sun Yat-sen is uh, from the south of China, speaks Cantonese, not Mandarin, um, learns English better than he actually learns Mandarin Chinese, and always feels very self-conscious about his ability to read and write in Chinese as well, uh, although he does eventually uh, polish these things up as he becomes more and more of a statesman. Uh, but down in the south, he taps much more into the uh, virulent uh, anti-Manchu barbarian discourse that is a form of social Darwinism, um, and he decides that he needs to overthrow the barbarian Manchus who are keeping China down, uh, tries to undertake various uh, pretty pathetic uh, um, uh, uprisings in the southern parts of China, and very quickly is suppressed and exiled out of China with a price on his head. If you ever come back, we're going to kill you. Um, he goes to Hawaii, travels the world, and becomes known as one of the earliest revolutionaries. Not a very good one or effective one. In fact, he failed over and over and over again, but he was one of the earliest revolutionaries who tried to overthrow the Qing government. Um, and, uh, you know, he was very urbane. He was very westernized. He spent a lot of time in Hawaii. Uh, he spoke English quite well. He dressed like a western gentleman, not in Qing dynasty robes and all this sort of stuff. Um, and he was very good at cultivating goodwill and, you know, uh, uh, toothless promises of support from many Western governments. He toured, you know, was uh, going on tours through Europe, uh, the United States, um, and, you know, had a lot of sympathy, uh, all right? But he didn't have an army. And he's been, by the, by the time of the 1911 revolution, he's been out of China for over 20 years. Uh, he doesn't have really any concrete contacts or, you know, uh, armies that he can lead. Um, and so he has revolutionary credibility. Now that the revolution has come, not by him, all right, it was by soldiers, a military garrison that had no connection to Sun Yat-sen really at all. Well, an indirect connection uh, through sort of the anti-Manchu propaganda that he was involved in. But uh, other than that, no direct organizational connection to him. Um, now that there has been a revolution, people, some people look to him and they say, well, wouldn't he be a great leader? He, he sort of symbolizes the revolution going back into the 1890s. He's the oldest revolutionary around, even though he was never really good at uh, undertaking revolution. Um, and so uh, Japan says, you know what, maybe we'll put our, our, all of our eggs in Sun Yat-sen's basket. Okay. Um, this backfires on Japan. Ends up being a poor decision. Uh, soon we'll come back to China and uh, get the honorary title of the first president of the Provisional Republic. Tries to uh, set up the new government, uh, the new capital in Nanjing, down in the southern part where he is from originally and where most of the revolutionary sentiment against the Manchus uh, actually fermented was more in the south. Um, and he realizes upon his return that he has no real base of support in China. Um, and he's quickly pushed aside by the military strongman Yuan Shikai in 1912, who then becomes the president of the Republic of China. Yuan Shikai is an old Qing dynasty official who was very influential and powerful, uh, uh, managed one of the most uh, advanced, powerful new armies stationed in the northern part of China called the New Armies as part of the reforms in the last decade of the Qing dynasty. 
Um, and Yan Shikai is called in to mediate between the revolutionaries in the south and the Manchu court in Beijing in the north, and he eventually manages to convince both sides that neither one of you are going to win this 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 this, this battle um, unless I decide uh, to support one of you. And he's able to sort of maneuver and negotiate very savvily to get both sides to agree um, that he is indispensable to stability in China. He convinces the Manchus that you need to abdicate or the revolutionaries are going to slaughter you all in, you know, sort of cultural genocide. Um, and he convinces the revolutionaries in the South that you need to let me have a high position in government because uh, you can't run this country without me. I have control over the North and the Northerners are not nearly as uh, rabid uh, re revolutionaries as you guys are in the South. Um, now, why does Japan not go with Yuan Shikai then? If it's clear that Yuan actually has an army, he's been continuously in China, he's been in the government, he has high contacts, he's influential. Uh, why does Japan go for uh, Sun Yat-sen over Yuan Shikai? Well, it turns out Yuan Shikai, if you remember that name, uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked about he was once posted to Korea in the 1890s. In fact, I believe uh, he was either one of or the first Qing Dynasty ambassador to Korea. Western style ambassador. Um, and at that time, remember back in the 1890s, uh, China and Japan are fighting, jockeying each other for influence in Korea. That's what leads eventually to the first uh, Sino-Japanese War in 1894. Um, and he continually, he, he, he uh, consistently worked to try to further Qing Dynasty interest against J Japanese interest in Korea in the 1890s. So this is someone that they have a prior enmity with, prior you know, relationship with, and it was not a positive one. Not only that, uh, they're also afraid that Yuan Shikai, because he has so many contacts and so and, and he has an actual army and whatnot, that he might become a far more powerful ruler in China than Japan wants to see. So there's a lot of reasons why they are not willing to uh, back Yuan Shikai initially. In fact, J Japan so dislikes and distrusts Yuan Shikai um, and sees him as representing you know an antithetical position to their interest in China that some Japanese diplomats we know they even considered a proposal to see if it was possible perhaps to maintain. Manchuria and Mongolia, uh, both, you know, sort of the northern and northeastern borderlands of the old Qing Empire. Maybe we can sort of set up our own puppet states here um, under uh, princely rule, you know, Mongol princes, Manchu princes, and we'll support them uh, to secede from the new state, and they won't be a part of China, and we'll have preeminent influence. Um, now, this is an idea a couple decades ahead of its time, and they also had to deal with Russia, which had a lot of influence in Mongolia. But nevertheless, this is actually your first preview of uh, Japanese ideas of basically saying, um, if we can't control the heartland of China, then we're going to redefine what China actually is. And China does not include Manchuria or Mongolia, and we'll set up our own uh, uh, independent state there on the basis of a nation state, a Mongol nation state, a Manchu nation state, or whatnot. Uh, they don't act on this proposal in 1911, um, but they will eventually act on it in 1931 when they uh, uh, create the state of Manchukuo. So Japan keeps on giving Sun Yat-sen money, resources, moral support from Tokyo in exchange for future economic concessions if he's ever able to seize power in Beijing. Never happens. Yuan Shikai crushes Sun Yat-sen and his uh, nationalist party, a new, a new political party um, that emerged out of his earlier organizational predece uh, predecessors, the uh, Revolutionary Alliance, the Tongman Hui. Um, the Yuan Shikai rightly sees Sun as a threat to his power, absolutely. Soon actually does have um, the ability to garner sympathetic votes in an election in China, and elections are held for parliamentary seats in Beijing. Yuan Shikai sees this as a threat, and he crushes both Sun Yat-sen and his Nationalist Party in various elections. 
twice, first in 1912 and then again in 1913. All right. To make matters worse for Japan, Yuan Shikai is supported by the British. The British are giving Yuan Shikai uh, sizable loans. They're giving him enough money in loans that he can defeat all his political rivals. Okay, so it seems like still there's always another Western Empire ready to check Japan's advances wherever they go, and usually this is only resolved in the end through war. All right, and that's going to be the case here as well. You'll eventually have war against uh, Great Britain and the United States, although it's much further down the line. Now, the next big incident, and it's only a couple years after this, is 1914, World War One in Europe. Now, the World War One battlefields don't include Asia in any way, although both Japan and China will uh, formally uh, enter the war on the side of the Allies. Okay, they're supporting Great Britain um, in the war, even and, and, and they will send logistical support and some laborers and some money uh, to the European theater, but they will not actually be uh, holding guns and fighting on the battlefields. All right, uh, but they want to make sure they're on the right side of the war, so when the war is over, they're not going to have to pay more indemnities or get punished in any way. All right. Um, now, what does World War, the outbreak of World War I mean for the domestic situation in China, however? It finally shifts the situation in Japan's favor. This is a rare opportunity. The 1911 revolution led to the breakdown of central government authority in China, uh, but it didn't lead to the sidelining of the other great Western powers. All right. Uh, you still have Britain and France and Germany uh, all sort of, uh, uh, you know, pulling the strings of their influence uh, with Yuan Shikai and the government in Beijing. And Japan has to contend with that. And, and, and they lose. They lose. They're not on Yuan Shikai's side. All right. However, World War I will represent the first time that every single Western empire is basically sidelined in Asia since Japan's ascent to great power status. And it overlaps with Chinese insta instability and the breakdown of the central government authority. Perfect! This is the perfect storm from Japan's perspective. Okay? The, the Western powers have basically withdrawn all but essential personnel in China. All right? The money dries up. The political willpower to, you know, uh, advance your own personal interest um, in China. This all dries up. All resources are transferred to the European theater. All right. So Japan says, well, great, we're going to support the allied powers. We already had an earlier alliance with Great Britain. Uh, that's who we feel more comfortable with. That's who we think is also going to win the war. Um, and they're also more powerful in Asia. So we're going to ally with them. China makes the same decision. Uh, but what Japan is able to do with this decision is that it gives them a pretext. When they enter the war on the side of the allies, it gives them the pretext to seize German colonial holdings in Asia. All right. Um, this will include Less well-known, there's a less well seizure and a better-known seizure in 1914. The less well-known one is the subject of our next episode, the South Seas, also known as Micronesia, which they're going to take as a quote-unquote mandate colonial holding right at this time period. They're going to take it from the Germans. Who are they taking all this from? They're taking it from the people who are on the other side of the war in Europe because you're expecting that they're going to lose and they're the vulnerable party now. Uh, so what colonial holdings does the German Empire have at this time period? They have Micronesia, which will prove very, very strategically valuable during World War II. 
Um, and the better known concession is German holdings in the peninsula of Shandong, right across from the Liaodong Peninsula on the maritime approach to Tianjin and eventually Beijing. Uh, the Shandong Peninsula, the Germans have the uh, uh, treaty port concession of the town of Qingdao, where they have a very famous brewery that still operates today. Um, and then they have 200 miles of railroads and the buffer zones and the soldiers that are allowed to be stationed along those railroad buffer zones that run all throughout Shandong Peninsula as well. All right. The uh, uh, Japanese take all of these uh, by force once they declare war on Germany, even though they don't actually fight the Germans. Yuan Shikai, the new president of the, of the Republic of China, condones Japan's actions in Shandong on the premise of we all need to support the war effort because China also supports the allies. So they kind of need to, you know, give lip service to saying, OK, OK, we understand this, but they need to save face as well. So how do we sort of justify that Japan has taken over what is really our territory? Why do you get to take what Germany has? Shouldn't we get it back? Well, no, because that's not how great power politics works. Japan is stronger than China, so Japan gets to determine what it wants, and uh, Britain is going to back them. What are you going to do against the united front of Britain and Japan? Uh, nothing. So the Chinese, Yuan Shikai says, but in order to save our face, we, you know, we see this as a temporary seizure. And they, they, they did see it like that. You can't possibly uphold this once the war is over. All right, temporarily, it is expedient to allow Japan, which has more resources than we do, to take over German holdings in Asia and specifically in China, okay? Um, but as time goes on, you better give us give this back to us. Shandong is Chinese territory. You can't have this permanently. And so the very next year, actually, Yuan Shikai tries to test the water. He says, all right, Japan, you kicked out the Germans out of Shandong, out of Qingdao, um, but this was temporary, remember, right? So... In 1915, he says, all right, there's no longer a war zone in Shandong. There is a war zone designation for the peninsula once war was declared on Germany that justified Japan formally going in and taking over and kicking the Germans out. Yuan Shikai says, okay, the Germans are gone. I'm lifting the war zone designation from Shandong. So Japanese troops are going to leave now, right? And he makes a formal request for Japanese troops to leave in 1915. Japan's faced with the decision. Are you going to abide by what's on paper? but doesn't reflect the imbalance of actual power? Or are you going to continue to try to pursue um, your concessions in China at China's expense? All right, uh, here's a turning point. You gotta make a big decision. Obviously, Japan chooses the latter approach and they decide this is the signal to take the next step. We're not leaving. We're not gonna give up Shandong to an inferior power. This is a huge concession. It's right across from the, Liaodong, from the Liaodong Peninsula as well. This is supremely convenient to have both of the peninsulas that jut out as you approach the, the Gulf of Bohai on your approach to Beijing. We're keeping Shandong and we're keeping uh, Qingdao. It says, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you 21 more demands. The famous 21 demands are issued, are given to Yuan Shikai in 1915. The 21 demands are uh, seen now in hindsight as the most humiliating unequal treaty that China ever had to sign. And it wasn't a treaty that the Western powers posed. It was a treaty that Japan imposed on the Western model. It extends the lease of the Liaodong Peninsula from its initial uh, 25 years to 99 years. <laughs> That's quite a big uh, extension, four times as long. It cancels China's right to buy back that South Manchurian Railway after the original stipulated period of 36 years. These two uh, provisions alone turns Manchuria into a virtual protectorate of Japan, at least southern Manchuria. There were also a host of other economic concessions. After all, there were 21 demands, right? Not just two or three. Um, economic concessions, 
iron, coal to be bought on favorable rates to allow Ch uh, Japan to have ac first access to the uh, 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 best finds, foreign loans. They're going to allow Japan to have first dibs on giving foreign loans with you know interest rates that favor us. Japanese advisors, you are compelled to use us as your chief advisors. You can't sign an economic deal with another foreign power unless we approve it. We're allowed to buy land now within China and own Chinese land. When China wants to buy new munitions to you know, give it the ability to beat us in war, you have to buy half of your munitions from Japan, not from other countries. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? Security. We're going to be allowed to post Japanese police in various areas of China. Japanese Buddhist monks can go wherever they want and proselytize if they want to. All right? These sorts of things. There's 21 of these demands. They're hugely invasive and exploitative and humiliating. Basically, China can't hire or give preference to a non-Japanese foreigner in pretty much any matter in China without Japan's approval. In sum, this sort of makes Japan in 1915 a hybrid of Russian and British interest and colonial interest in China. They now have some of the territorial holdings that Russia had. They have big chunks of land, Shandong, Liaodong, uh, the land along the South Manchurian Railway, uh, Kwantung, remember that. Um, and yet now they also have the economic privileges that Great Britain had pioneered for so long within China. What's the response of the Western countries who are occupied with war back home in Europe? Very feeble. London says it won't accept the occupation of Beijing or a Japanese protectorate over all of China. That's it. <laughs> all right, Japan sees this, rightly, as a tacit admission that all else is acceptable. As long as we don't occupy Beijing uh, or establish some sort of a protectorate over the Republic of China like we did in Korea, uh, we're good to go. Now, in the end, on paper, some of these demands would be modified to save face for China because they're, they're extremely uh, uh, humiliating. But the net result, even after the modification and scaling back of some of the demands, was to usher in preeminent Japanese influence in China. Okay, so it is now again another twist and turn in this complex saga. It's very supremely inconvenient for Japan that Yuan Shikai dies suddenly in 1916. In fact, many scholars think that it was the humiliation and the stresses of the 21 demands and the situation in China uh, that sort of exacerbated his health. Uh, and he dies um, of uremia, um, I believe, in June of 1916, uh, you know, just months after he has accepted the 21 demands. Um, in response to the 21 demands, he tries to sort of uh, create a smokescreen, a political smokescreen, and says, I'm going to restore the monarchy. Uh, this is why China is weak. A president isn't suitable. And he actually restores the, uh, the monarchy, creates a new dynasty, and, a, and names himself emperor. And this gives a pretext to many of the governors in the provinces who then rebel against him and secede from his new uh, imperial state. He has to abolish the emperorship and the new empire and go back to the Republic of China, all this together with the 21 demands, his failure, his, his, his uh, domestic political failure with the restoration of the empire. Um, it, you know, obviously, it gives him a lot of stress, and he ends up dying in 1916. This is not convenient for Tokyo. They, you know, Yuan Shikai had signed this agreement, and he was actually, before they issued the 21 demands, Yuan Shikai was having some success in reestablishing a strong central government in China. Uh, he was well on his way uh, to recreating a strong central government authority, um, and his death uh, kicks off what we think of as the warlord era. Uh, 1916 to 1928 is when the heartland of China, from Beijing to Guangzhou, uh, will be dominated by warlords. Um, 
The warlord situation will continue until 1949 in the non-Han borderlands, uh, but in the heartland, a good 15 years or so after this, uh, is dominated by warlord politics. Okay, um, so what is Japan going to do? Yuan Shikai's death um, is another setback for Japan. He went from a feared rival to a very weak puppet after the World War I sidelined his British allies. Um, now what's going to happen? You've uh, given other countries, uh, Bolshevik Russia, which comes to power in 1917, um, they're going to try again uh, to create a new leadership, a new central government in China. And they are going to turn to uh, Sun Yat-sen. In the 1920s, the late 19-teens and the early 1920s, it's going to be the Communist International uh, that is going to find Sun Yat-sen again, pair him up with another warlord in the southern parts of China, um, and eventually say, you know what, pairing you up with warlords doesn't seem to work. We want to create your own military academy, teach you how to create a, a, a Leninist party state uh, with a more extreme degree of organization and party ideology. An internal discipline. Uh, this is a sort of political party that's going to allow you to retake power or take power for the first time in China. Um, and it's after, it's during this time period um, in which Japan loses its ability uh, to back a new claimant to the central government throne of China. All right. Um, however, it's at the same time that Japan is increasingly dominating the economy of China at the expense of all the other powers. They've they've flopped again. All right, they fumbled an opportunity um, to sort of take over the central government and back their claimant to the throne. Uh, not entirely their fault. Uh, you can't help it when someone dies. Uh, although putting the 21 demands on Yuan Shikai certainly didn't help matters. Um, nevertheless, World War I, the collapse of central government authority in China, uh, on the whole it's bad, but there is a little bit of silver lining here. Still, you are the preeminent economic power in China now. Um, and the Western powers come back, they're going to find a very different situation. All right, Japanese elites are acknowledging that there is no way for the Japanese empire's industries to survive without access to China. And it's now that cheaper and geographically closer Japanese manufactured goods will flood the China market, displacing what are more expensive Western manufactured goods because they oftentimes come from farther away. And many Japanese diplomats in China now are talking about uh, how we need to create a new ideology that justifies our growing economic presence, um, our growing political and economic footprint in China, even if it's still sort of messy and it's not totally successful yet, we're getting bigger and bigger here. And they start talking about how we need to uh, subscribe to an idea of coexistence, co-prosperity. We need to save China through Japanese tutelage and guidance. This is your first preview of an ideology that will flourish and reach full fruition during the 1930s, during World War II, when Japan will talk about the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And they'll take the line that uh, all the Western empires and us are very advanced. But we're the only advanced Asian empire, and that makes us more uniquely suited uh, to rule other Asians and bring them into modernity. Uh, the Western empires don't understand you as well as we do, uh, because we're Asian, and they're not, and they're going to look down on you. And we're not. They will, but they say they, that they won't. Okay, And it's during this time period that you get the first stirrings, the first inklings um, of a new Japanese comprehensive ideology to justify their presence in China at the expense of all other Western powers. We're not just another member of this exclusive Western advanced imperial club. Uh, we are uh, special because we're Asian 
and that makes us uniquely suited to have preeminent influence in China. This is, this is the ideological result of the sidelining of Western powers during World War I. All right. And there's also another military counterpart to all of this at the exact same time period. Uh, Japan sees one of its chief rivals as Bolshevik Russia. When the Bolsheviks uh, seize power in 1917 in, in the uh, European side of Russia, uh, a civil war ensues throughout much of Asian Russia, Siberia. Um, and Japan sees itself as you know, always having been in uh, uh, significant competition with Russia. Unlike the other imperial powers, uh, Russia, even though you kicked them out of Korea, they're still in northern Manchuria, and they still have a contiguous land border with Mongolia and Manchuria. Um, they're still dangerous. And they're still a, a European empire, essentially, from the Japanese perspective. Um, and so when they see that a, uh, there is instability in the Russian empire as well, they, they, they then say, well, we can sideline Russia for good in Asia, prevent them from sort of backing a new claimant to the Chinese throne, like Sun Yat-sen, um, if we can make sure that the Bolsheviks don't win the Civil War, or if they win the Civil War, they only win it in the European western side of the Russian Empire, and maybe the eastern side we can set up as sort of a puppet state um, that is friendly to Japan and is staunchly royalist, wants to restore the old czars, um, and is not revolutionary in any sense whatsoever. And so from eight, 1918 to 1923, the Japanese will actually embark on what is known as the Siberian Intervention. Uh, Japan sends 70,000 troops to Russian Siberia with the goal of creating a Russian royalist, uh, known as the White Russian, as opposed to the Red Russians, the Bolsheviks, a White Russian puppet regime in the Amur Basin uh, to sort of uh, back up Manchuria and uh, make sure that hostile Russian influence is kicked out of northeastern China and the buffer zones immediately to the north of northeastern China. Um, and they think, you know, if we win, even though there'll be Russians here, they'll be friendly, pliable Russians because we helped them win the war. And without our, without our military help, they know that their regime will fall. This plan also backfires when the Bolsheviks win. <laughs> they win not just in the European side of Russia, but on the Asian side as well. And when they win uh, the Russian Civil War throughout the old Russian Empire, Japan finds itself um, in a not very enviable position. All right, now they're surrounded by hostile revolutionary progressives um, in their land borders in East Asia, in Northeast Asia. And they lost whatever revolutionary credibility they might have once had when they decided to briefly back uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, after the 1911 revolution. All right, now what's going to happen? When the Bolsheviks win the Russian Civil War, they are going to take over the wooing, the overtures, the recruitment of Sun Yat-sen away from the Japanese who, in Sun Yat-sen's eyes, have, or any progressive Chinese revolutionary eyes, the Japanese have lost all credibility. All right. First, they backed Sun. Then they backed Yuan Shikai. Uh, then they gave Yuan Shikai the 21 demands. Uh, then they went to war against the Bolsheviks. So then they lost that war. What does Japan stand for anyways? Apparently nothing other than their own interests. So for anyone who truly believes in the value of a progressive overthrow of the existing social order, China needs to change fundamentally in order to stop this constant humiliation and save the nation. Um, you're not going to turn to Japan right now. And Sun Yat-sen is now receptive. He's along the southern borderlands of China. He is receptive uh, to receiving advisors and military resources and money from the Bolsheviks, from the Red Russians, 
um, and uh, increasingly listens to what they tell him to do. If you want to seize power during the warlord era, if you want to reconstitute a new central government, a progressive central government in China, uh, not a corrupt old sort of imperial feudal style one that the, that the Japanese clearly want to do, um, you need to take our support and take our advice. All right, and that's exactly what happens. The Russians give Sun Yat-sen uh, many advisors. They help him set up uh, what's known as the Wampoa Military Academy down in the far extreme south of China. Um, and it's at this academy that uh, Sun Yat-sen will hire as one of his first instructors of the first class of uh, you know Russian-trained military officers. He hires Chiang Kai-shek, a young Chiang Kai-shek, to be the uh, military head of the Wampoa Military Academy. Um, and this is all occurring in the early 1920s um, as the uh, Japanese are losing the Siberian intervention in the Russian Civil War. All right. Uh, so Japan, although they had a great opportunity and they now have predominant economic influence in China, um, they didn't get the political result that they necessarily wanted. All right. It was pretty hard to control what goes on in a place like China. It's pretty big. It's pretty complex. Um, and what China and what Japan now sees is that, um, you know, the Russian communists have managed to expand their influence. How did that happen? Didn't they lose the war with us? I thought we kicked them out. Well, no. No, you didn't. And the Russians are back now. And they are backing Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek. And over the course of the 1920s, this will be a powerful new force that develops in the southern part of China. And as you probably know, Chiang Kai-shek, after Sun Yat-sen dies of cancer in 1925, I believe it is, 24-25, um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's going to create a new central government and defeat most of the other warlords and be the new government of China. Um, and uh, he's going to be very hostile to Japan. Okay. Um, what also happens, the fallout of World War I, um, is that there is uh, it gives rise to sort of uh, activist Chinese nationalism by young, increasingly westernized uh, Japanese intellectuals. At the Treaty of Versailles, signed in 1919 to end World War I, uh, China, uh, uh, you know, uh, eventually did re realizes that it can't. Um, kick the Japanese out of Shandong, um, Qingdao, the old German concessions, and they realize that uh, Japan's going to be able to keep this land. Um, and the diplomats sent to Versailles are strong-armed. They're pressured into uh, uh, signing the treaty that says, you know what, these aren't going to go back to China, they're going to go to Japan. Um, and uh, when Chinese intellectuals in Beijing hear about this, they begin to organize some of the first large-scale street protests by young, westernized Chinese intellectuals. Um, this is some of the first protests of the 20th century. And the pressure is so huge that they force the uh, Chinese government to uh, withdraw its signature from the Treaty of Versailles as an a, uh, act of protest against the uh, uh, allowing Japan to keep their concessions on the Shandong Peninsula. Um, this revolutionary ferment, although it seems to um, uh, temporarily, in the near term, benefit Japan, hey, we got to keep Shandong and Qingdao, uh, in the long term, it's created, again, more and more anti-Japanese sentiment among a large swath of uh, uh, powerful intellectuals uh, who are going to increasingly gravitate to the progressive movement sponsored by the Russians, who have all the revolutionary credibility now. 
If you're looking for a light at the end of the tunnel in China in the 1920s and you're Chinese, you're looking to the Russians, you're looking to communism, you're looking to Chiang Kai-shek in the South, who's not a warlord anymore. He's got a, he's got a political party, he's got an ideology, he has an army, he has foreign support from a progressive power, um, and this is going to provide a lot of mainstream support for political movements that are very nationalistic. China for the Chinese uh, were hostile to Japan. They are not on our side. All right. The end result throughout the 1920s is a perfect storm of factory strikes, union agitation, revolutionary propaganda, boycotts of Japanese goods, young Chinese westernized intellectuals talking about liberating China, not only from the Western powers, but from Japan. And many of the Western powers respond to the new situation, this new revolutionary ferment, this anti-foreignism in the 1920s by saying, okay, you know what? We see where this is all going and we've been increasingly sidelined uh, and we have to concentrate our efforts elsewhere in our empires. Uh, we're now willing to discuss the revision of the unequal treaties and the eventual uh, uh, abolishment of our imperialist privileges in China. Now, what's Japan going to do, to do about this? They see a new ideologically hostile progressive movement emerging in the southern parts of China. They see a lot of sympathy in urban areas among young, active Chinese intellectuals, university students, uh, to support this progressive movement. Uh, there's a lot of hostility towards Japan for its economic concessions, for its presence in Shandong, the Treaty of Versailles. The other Western powers are now agreeing in response to a lot of this animosity and the rise of, or, or, uh, the rise of organized Chinese nationalism that actually has, you know, the support now of an army <laughs> um, and a political party. Um, the Western powers are saying, we will talk about our eventual withdrawal. What's Japan going to do? How are they going to respond to this situation in the 1920s? Japan responds in two ways, cultural and political. Their political response is to say, you know what, we need to shore up and bolster our territorial interest in the Northeast in Manchuria. We need to patronize and support the local warlord. The local warlord is a man, a very famous uh, uh, politician by the name of Zhang Zuolin. Zhang Zuolin, who has one of the coolest nicknames in Chinese, in modern Chinese history, the Tiger of Manchuria. He's the chief, like, governor official of the largest province um, in northeastern China. All right. He holds the uh, major city of Shenyang, he is stridently anti-Bolshevik, all right, anti-Russian communist, uh, and receptive to the Japanese. He's willing to work with them because he knows if I'm not going to be on the Russian side, the Russians are all around here. If I'm not going to be on their side, if I am ideologically uh, opposed to Russian communism, uh, then the only other major power who's in the vicinity who has resources that I might benefit by is Japan. So he works with, with the Japanese, and Japan is willing uh, to give Zhang Zuolin uh, economic loans, weapons, Japanese advisors. Okay, and you see this uh, uneasy relationship develop uh, between Zhang Zuolin, uh, the chief political Chinese political warlord um, in northeastern China, and Japan. There's a problem with all this, though. The more resources, the more aid that Japan gives to Zhang Zuolin in an attempt to make sure that they solidify their control over the northeast as a springboard to the rest of China, and no matter what happens in the heartland, because it's, it's proving really difficult <laughs> to control what happens in the Chinese heartland, and it looks like we may have lost, ultimately, 
All right. Um, even though we had such a great opportunity in World War One, it looks like we didn't actually get our claws into the heartland of China like we really wanted. Somehow Russia managed to do this. What the hell? All right. So you want to solidify your control in the Northeast. So whatever happens there, we'll be ready to pounce one day. The more aid that Zhang Zolin receives, however, the more he wants to be a prominent domestic political actor in Chinese politics himself. He's a warlord. He wants to win. He wants to take Beijing and be the new president of China, defeat all the other warlords, and, you know, be the guy. The next Yuan Shikai. And the more A, the stronger Zhang Zuolin gets, the more he starts thinking, you know, I don't need to rely on the Japanese as much. Ultimately, he knows what the Japanese wants. They want things that are going to benefit Japanese interests at his expense. They're not going to truly let him be autonomous. He knows this. He's not an idiot. He's a smart politician. So he tries to maneuver subtly and make plans to strike south and conquer Beijing on the strength, on the back, of the resources and assistance he's been able to get from Japan. But Japan wants Zhang Zuolin to remain divorced from the rest of China and beholden only to Japan. Ultimately, the failure of this relationship, the incompatibility of these two agendas, along with the rise of Chiang Kai-shek's, you know, Sun Yat-sen's by via Chiang Kai-shek, who takes over when Sun Yat-sen dies, the rise of the new nationalist government in the South, with Soviet support, this will lead the Japanese to decide we need to take matters into our own hand in Manchuria as well. Uh, no part of China, apparently, is completely controllable without resorting to war. That is the conclusion that the Japanese come to time and time again. Uh, subtle politics, strong-armed politics, all types of politics and negotiations, uh, ultimately, it's not enough. China is a beast that's really hard to tame. I say you need to go to war if you really want to have preeminent influence because eventually anyone, any, any domestic actor that you, that you back is going to pursue their own interests at the end of the day once they're strong enough. And so the incompatibility of these uh, agendas will lead the Japanese to decide to assassinate Zhang Zuolin in 1928. Uh, 1928, Zhang Zuolin will actually decide to make a trip to Beijing to enter into negotiations with the representative of Chiang Kai-shek uh, about ending the warlord era and joining the Nationalist Party and setting up a new uh, central government in Nanjing to the south, um, uh, away from the longtime imperial capital of Beijing. And on his way to Beijing to meet with nationalist representatives to discuss the dawn of a new political order in China, Japan realizes We've lost him. He's off the leash. And if we want to have, you know, maintain our influence and gain more influence in China, he needs to go. And they, and they uh, arrange to have Zhang Zuoling's train blown up with a bomb on his way to Beijing. And he dies. And ultimately, then, they'll then try to back his son, Zhang Xueliang. But unfortunately, Zhang Xueliang will also end up being a very independent-minded person who will join the Nationalist Party, support Chiang Kai-shek, um, and not further Japanese interests. Uh, when that fails as well, uh, they decide, all right, you know what? We just have to take over this entire chunk of land. And that's when they create Manchukuo, the puppet state of Manchukuo in 1932, which will be the counterpart to the Russians uh, creating their own puppet state of the uh, Mongolian People's Republic, uh, which they created uh, in 1924. What's going on here? is Japanese uh, uh, diplomats are coming to the realization, if we can't control the heartland of China, if we can't control any part of China ultimately, through intermediaries, through diplomacy, all right, through backroom 
strong-arm tactics or money or advisors, if we can't control China by these means, we're just going to have to redefine the very definition of China itself to ensure that our chief interests lie outside our new definition of China. They're just going to redefine what China means. And if we win the war on the battlefield, our definition sticks. That's how it works. Whoever wins the war gets to define political boundaries, gets to define the names, the very reality by which we process the world. And this is Japan's plan. Um, and that's when they decide we're going to redefine China in 1932. Manchuria is not a part of China. It never was. It's a Manchu nation state that's been oppressed by the Chinese. And we're going to liberate the Manchus in their own state of the state of Manchu, uh, which is really what Manchu Kuo means. All right, that's the political way of responding to the new situation in the 1920s. The cultural response is to try to simultaneously, while you're uh, uh, giving rise to so much anti-Japanese sentiment uh, politically, try to cultivate some Chinese goodwill through soft power initiatives. You have the money and resources to do it now. You've taken enough resources from China that you actually have some, you know, some surplus where you can try thinking about uh, goodwill initiatives that might actually give a favorable impression of the Japanese. Yeah, it's an uphill battle, I understand, but they're going to try it. All countries do this uh, today as well. Uh, all countries have a certain amount of money and funds put aside uh, to try to uh, inculcate a good image in other countries and gain favor with the people, even if the government hates you. Uh, just think of you know something like the Peace Corps that the United States has today. Um, you know it's, it's couched as a goodwill mission where we spend United States money and resources to help you develop your country by giving you teachers and people who will create uh, you know irrigation projects and you know urban infrastructure, whatever. It's all free for you. Uh, but some countries suspect you know what I think there's actually an ulterior political motive, and not every country accepts Peace Corps volunteers. But that's an example of one of these initiatives, okay? The rationale from Japan's perspective here is, sure, we, we make a, uh, you know, a pretty profit off of you, but we give back to your people in the process and you're better for it, all right? We have a more rational, efficient, enlightened use of your resources than you yourself would undertake. And look what we do. When we make a profit off you, we then reinvest it back in your country to help you achieve our level of modernity, Okay, In this sense, cultural exchange and diplomacy are extensions of political agendas cloaked in a discourse of altruism. All right. United States' most famous one, the Peace Corps. Uh, China has some of these uh, as well. You ever heard of the uh, Confucius Institutes? Uh, now of, uh, the subject of much controversy today, whether or not universities should allow Chinese-funded Confucian Institutes uh, to run cultural programs and language classes in universities. Eventually, there was concern that uh, this might be a means of infiltration and uh, inco uh, uh, fostering of Chinese uh, subtle influence in U.S. universities. And some universities had a backlash and decided to not accept Chinese funding for uh, uh, Confucian institutes. All right. Things like that. All countries do this. All right. How is Japan going to do it in the 1920s? They're going to say, we will take the boxer indemnity, which is still being paid out to us every single year from, from 1901. Uh, we'll take the boxer indemnity funds um, and uh, uh, invest them in various cultural programs in China. They're actually taking a page out of the United States playbook. The U.S. was the first to do this, and then Japan quickly followed suit. Um, and they said, we're going to take money that you are giving to us uh, in exchange for you know the horrible stuff that you did in 1901, and we will sponsor uh, the development and advancement of Chinese culture just like China once sponsored the development uh, you know, of uh, Chinese culture in Japan. You once sort of seeded civilization in Japan uh, in the middle of the first millennium AD. 
now we're returning the favor and we're helping out China. We're lending a hand to China with your own money, with your own resources, like you did to us uh, 1,500 years ago. Education was the top recipient of these so-called returned boxer indemnity funds um, for the past 20 years or so. Japan was a very popular destination for Chinese students to go to attend university. Um, it was often more expensive and difficult to go to Europe or North America, um, and Japan was already sort of westernized. They had western-style universities, western-style curriculum, sciences. You could become westernized by getting access to western education in Tokyo in various prestigious Japanese universities. Most Chinese national figures, uh, most, many in the 1920s and 30s will have a Japanese education or had spent significant time in Japan at some point during the last decade of the Qing dynasty. Now, in recent years, however, um, there had been fewer students. And so they said, we're going to use the boxer indemnity funds to create study abroad scholarships to Tokyo. From 1923 to 1937, there will be 320 annual scholarships for Chinese students to study in Japan. One-fifth of all Chinese students in Japan were on a boxer indemnity scholarship. Now, it's all not all just altruism. Remember, no one spends money and gets nothing in return. All right? Uh, that is the, the first rule of any rich person when they enter into philanthropy. You need to get something in, 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 in return. Uh, even if it's an intangible, not a material return, uh, you still want to get something. And usually it has to do with bolstering your reputation as an enlightened, benevolent person who didn't make a lot of money or gain a huge empire by killing a lot of people and exploiting a lot of, a, a lot of lands. So Chinese students who received boxer funds to study in Japan uh, actually had to sign a piece of paper that had the following pledge acknowledgement on it. Quote, in accordance with the rules concerning scholarships for Chinese students in Japan, I accept with utmost gratitude a monthly stipend of 70 yen. With this financial aid, I pledge to devote myself to my studies. After graduation, I shall remember this beneficence and strive to reciprocate this favor from His Majesty the Emperor. You can understand how many students, Chinese students, would probably take issue with this, but you have no choice. You want the money, you have to make this show of loyalty to the Japanese empire and say, look, China, uh, Japan's helping us out. All right. Uh, you know, you can imagine that under their breath, grumbling, they're probably saying this is our money in the first place. And now you give it back to us as charity. How dare you? The other thing that you see during the 1920s is the growth of Japanese sinologists. All right, the first generation of Japanese sinologists. We already talked about in the last decade of the Qing Dynasty, 1902 or whatever, um, Japan training its own China hands. All right, these are sort of political apparatives who would gather intelligence on China. By the 1920s, you have a whole university-educated crop of scholars, professors, um, who are studying China uh, at a very high, sophisticated level. All right, boxer funds will be used to support the creation of research institutes in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Tokyo, and they will host not only Japanese scholars who study China, but Chinese scholars who want to study China but find it difficult to do so on Chinese resources and under a Chinese political regime in the chaotic era of the warlord backdrop. All right, um, Japanese Sinology will become a very respected branch of scholarship. And much of the work that they did, even though it might be tinged with racial, you know, pejorative racial undertones and ideologies, the actual empirical data was st still used today. Many people who are historians, and I, you know, I remember this in grad school, uh, it was still common 
for my advisor's generation, you had to read the Japanese language works of scholarship that uh, uh, pertain to modern Chinese history because they were extremely influential and they were seen as some of the best sinologists in the entire world and they had done field research in China. Um, I know a lot of the work that was carried out in uh, northeastern China, surveys and whatnot, scholarly uh, data that was compiled uh, is still seen as being of very high quality today um, and shorn of its ideological context. Uh, it's often used in historical studies today as well. Um, so the legacy of Japanese Sinology, the exchange of Chinese students going to Tokyo back and forth, the creation of research institutes and whatnot, this is one of the ways in which uh, Japan will try um, to uh, cultivate some goodwill among the Chinese. We are contributing to the sum knowledge of China. Um, they just put their own spin on that. We're contributing uh, in a way that uh, brings you into modernity. And if it helps us along the way as well, well, of course, you know, I mean, we are the ones who are holding your hand as you uh, get through this tumultuous era in Chinese history. Uh, it wasn't all scholarship, though, too. Uh, boxer indemnity funds, Japanese boxer indemnity funds would also be used to build hospitals um, and various uh, uh, social services in, uh, in and around Japanese communities in China. And these institutions could often serve hundreds of thousands of Chinese every single year. Now, the Japanese settlements, we're almost done, I promise you, the Japanese settlements in China. By 1935, there were about 58,000 Japanese citizens who are resident in the Chinese heartland, not Manchuria. Uh, this is mostly between Beijing and Shanghai, all right? They're mostly in the northern part of the country. In Manchuria and Korea, there was Japanese settler colonialism in the six digits. But in the dense Han-settled heartland, this is not possible or desired. All right. Most of the Japanese who uprooted themselves and relocated to China uh, were from either Tokyo or the island of Kyushu, which is you know, the one that's closest to Tokyo and the mainland. Um, these citizens would often confine themselves to the Japanese foreign concessions in the treaty ports, uh, right alongside other Western treaty ports, okay, where they could live in sort of a Japanese language bubble outside what they regarded as the dirty and crowded and backward Chinese town. Uh, within the Japanese treaty port concession, you would have Japanese language signs, Japanese shops, Japanese hospitals, Japanese cemeteries if you die there, Japanese schools for your kids. It's its own, you know, recreated universe of Japan uh, in China. And you also obviously have political immunity in this area as well. As with the uh, Meiji era, post-Meiji restoration, national identity in the Japanese islands, uh, the overseas colonial identity both in China for these Japanese citizens and for everyone in the empire outside of China was premised upon uh, the divinity of the emperor and the Shinto religion. Right, that was the national polity, the Kokutai ideology. Uh, the Japanese community in China would celebrate the emperor's birthday. That would be a big holiday. You decorate the gunboats and the consulates with flags and lanterns. Um, and there would always be a Shinto shrine as a focal point of the Japanese community. Usually, however, the Shinto shrine was really the only real impressive visual feature or uh, conspicuous visual feature of the Japanese overseas expat community um, in China, since the Japanese often preferred to live in Chinese-style buildings and uh, did not usually live in Western-style brick colonial architecture. Now, the cultural attitudes of these Japanese expatriates uh, towards the Chinese environment, the Chinese people, uh, was dominated by what we might think of as Japan's Orient. That was the uh, opening subtitle of today's episode, Japan's Orient. This is a, a, an interesting phrase. Japan is already in the Orient, right? Well, from the perspective of the Westerners. Uh, Orientalism is uh, the discourses, the ideologies that Westerners uh, often uh, imposed and uh, used to discuss 
and oftentimes, you know, formulate policies for governing non-Western populations. All right. Um, and oftentimes it represented a gross misunderstanding of how local society actually worked. And it was infused with pejorative discourses about how backward you are, how dirty you are. You don't have hygienic modernity, blah, blah, blah. And we need to help bring you into the modern era, kicking and screaming if need be. It's for your own good. Um, and by the way, this costs us a lot of money to save you from yourselves. So we need to exploit your lands for uh, you know money to pay for it all also. All right. Um, now, Japan will subscribe to the same ethos, all right? And they will begin to see the rest of Asia as their own orient. That is, their own backward other, other with a capital O, against which we define ourselves. And China will be the ultimate other. They, China, will be, China and the Chinese will become the chief foil for an advanced modern enlightened Japanese identity. Okay, here's a quote from a 1940 Japanese guidebook to China, if you're a tourist traveling there. Um, Up to the present, the feeling of Japanese towards whatever Chinese might be living near them has been to have as little to do as possible with them, and their attitudes of racial superiority are quite overbearing. Uh, sorry, this wasn't. Uh, I think this was this, the, 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 this wasn't a Japanese tourist guide book. It was a uh, a, uh, a book criticizing uh, Japanese attitudes towards the Chinese in China in 1940. All right, there were many dual impressions that Japanese who traveled to China had. Educated elite Japanese um, had been educated in Chinese classical literature. Okay, they read the same stuff that the Chinese local elites read, uh, but it was you know it, it was ancient stuff from a different time in a different place. Well, not a different place necessarily, but a different era. And it was hard for them to reconcile this sometimes with the China that they saw before their very eyes in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so if you read the writings of Japanese who traveled through China during this time period, they'll often uh, uh, frame their travels in terms of ancient Chinese literature. They're quoting Chinese poets they're quoting Confucius and the philosophers and, you know, these sorts of things. Um, but then they're also saying how, how sad it is that China has fallen so far. Like the Westerners, they see Chinese civilization as having stagnated from an ancient height. And now they've fallen so far. And the Japanese are seeking out ancient monuments and tourist sites of famous poets and literary men and politicians from 2,000 years ago. And they're familiar with these because they've read the same literary classics that the Chinese have read. Um, And then they lament how far China has fallen and redouble their conviction that it's Japan's duty to uh, uh, save China from itself and reinvigorate that old glory that was once there. Only we, as the most advanced Asians, not Westerners, uh, have the ability to truly understand China and resurrect that ancient glory. So travel in China for many Japanese was fundamentally different than uh, uh, travel in the West and travel of other Westerners in China. All right, they're much more steeped in the Chinese literary tradition themselves. Um, And unlike when they travel in the West, they're thinking about their own cultural heritage and they're trying to claim China for themselves and say, we are uniquely suited to saving them and resurrecting that ancient glory. Most of their impressions of China were negative. If you read uh, Japanese travel literature, most Japanese are shocked. When they first visit China from Japan, they think they're going to be finding uh, the China of ancient poems and ancient essays that they read in school. 
and the paintings that they've seen in the museums. And oftentimes it's a shock at what they see. And they say there's mobs of beggars, people eat leaves and roots, most people have no access to rice, they burn horse dung to fuel their stoves, there's very few facilities for bathing, the people look so dirty, the inns are primitive and filled with bedbugs, everyone smokes opium, the food is basic and crude and disgusting. And the toilet stories, over and over again, you'll see everyone comments on when they had to use the toilet. And they'll say, as I was, you know, doing the num- you know, doing my business, a pig came up um, in this little outhouse and was able to lick my butt as I was going to the bathroom. Or dogs came up and they have access to them. It was gross for them because they had been reared on Western ideas of hygienic modernity. How advanced you are is often reflected in how clean you are. And the Chinese did not pass this test for the most part when the, cha- when the Japanese started to travel around the country. Now, this attitude, Japan's Orientalism, uh, would be first developed in China, and, and China would always remain the chief cultural foil for the Japanese. All right, they're kind of like us, but we've moved beyond them now, and we need to save them. However, this ideology will eventually be exported throughout the Japanese empire and applied to all other Asians that will come under Japanese influence. And we're going to see a particularly ugly version of it in our next episode. Next time, we leave the continental mainland and head back to the ocean. Not the Japanese islands, not Hokkaido, not Sahalin, not Okinawa, not Taiwan, but to the new maritime frontier acquired during World War II from the Germans that so pissed off Chinese intellectuals and led to the rise of organized political activism in China after the Treaty of Versailles in uh, 1919 and eventually infused Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party um, and the Chinese Communist Party uh, with you know, foot soldiers and recruits and significant urban sympathy. Micronesia. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Japanese acquisition of and rule and policies and attitudes and the ugly manifestations of Japan's Orient in the South Seas in episode 48 of Beyond Huaxia. Beyond Huaxia.